Good morning. So this morning, and actually this week and next week, we are starting into a two-week series with a number of congregations around the county uh, about biblical unity. This week, talking about unity within a congregation. Next week, talking about unity on a larger scale among Christian churches. And I just want to say going into this that you know, we're, we're doing this as part of a preaching initiative, but really for us here in this congregation, this is kind of a core value. I mean, this is, it, it's, it's why we um, uh, just uh, have in the bulletin, you're, you're, you know, you're, there's somebody there for you to pray for this week. Um, we're praying for the Rusans actually this week, is that right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and that's part of that is, is, yeah, we want to pray for one another, but part of it is a unity thing. You can't, you can't pray regularly for somebody in a, in a positive way, God bless them, pray for God's best, and, and, and have, a, um, you know, have, have a, a difficulty with them in your life. It, it just doesn't work. So part of that is unity. You know, we, it's why we pray for uh, unity among congregations. It's why we encourage things like the, the countywide prayer rally and Jesus reigns. All of those are helping to bring about unity in the church. And so for us, this is a big deal. It's beyond just the, this preaching initiative. And I also want to say that I feel like I'm, I'm in, in a lot of ways, I'm addressing this from a, a, a point of strength in our congregation. Um, you know, there are, there are churches that I have ministered in over the years that really, really needed to hear what I'm going to say today. Are you with me? Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? Um, I don't feel like we really, really need to hear it, but I am going to say this. We have not arrived. Amen. So we're going to learn some things, and I'm expecting that the Holy Spirit is going to convict us in some areas and say, hey, there's some stuff here that you still need to work on. Everybody there? Yeah. All right, good. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we do ask that you would do that this morning, that you would work in our hearts, that we not just hear a, a nice message, but instead that we open ourselves to you, that we, that we willingly give ourselves into your hands right now and ask you to work in us and through us by your word. And Father, at the same time, we're also praying for, for all of those other congregations that are doing the same kind of thing this morning. As they talk about unity in their congregations, Lord, we're asking that you would bring conviction, you would bring life, you would bring repentance where it's necessary, uh, but, but you would draw your body closer together the way that you desire. And we trust you to do that because you're faithful. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to start today in... Kind of an obvious place for you know talking about unity that's john 17 jesus is praying and i've had some people say that they felt like jesus was praying like these outlandish prayers in john 17 john 17 11, that they may be one even as we are one i mean he's praying for us you and me to have the same kind of unity that jesus and the father have that i think they're right i think that it is an outlandish prayer Go down to verse 20 and following. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be, be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed over and over, May they be one. And, and he prayed that our, our oneness would be a testimony to the world that he was sent by the Father. Those are big prayers. Those are bold prayers. Jesus is not praying this nice little innocuous bless me prayer. 
And he's being very deliberate, very intentional. You know, if you read through that whole section in John 17, three different times in there, Jesus says, I'm not praying for this, I'm praying for this. So he's being very specific, very deliberate in what he's, he's asking for. And, and I'm convinced that he could, he could be confident, he could be deliberate because he knew what he was about to do was going to help bring about that unity. His death and resurrection is is really behind us being united. Through his dying, he, if I can say it this way, he gave us unity. You've heard me say this before, that Jesus' death and resurrection not only reconciles us to the Father, but also reconciles us to one another. Ephesians chapter 2, he himself is our peace who made us both one. He's talking there about Jews and Gentiles, these two basically antagonistic groups toward one another, all right? It's made us both one. It's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's through and because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have been made one. John eleven fifty two 52 tells us that Jesus died to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How much more plain can you get than that? I mean, it's just right there. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say you, you were one. It doesn't say you will be someday one, future tense. No, it says you are, present tense, today. According to the Bible, because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have already been made one. It's part of the gospel. So the problem that we have is not that we haven't already been made one. It's the the practical day-to-day walking it out, if you will. The the phrase that we have heard here um, numerous times over the last few years is that we need to live into what we've already been given. It's already a part of us, but we need to to, to live it out, not just conceptually, but but to actually do it. And so I want to spend a few minutes in um, Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to make this a little bit practical for us. And and let me say this, there are other places that I could have gone to express some of these same things. And I'm going to invite you just to write in your margins, maybe do some some study later this week, Um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 to 14. Colossians 3, 11 to 14, just jot that down because I could go there and do a lot of the same stuff that I'm doing with Philippians 2, but um, that might just uh, be good for you to, to look at later on. First couple of verses of Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That, that sounds a lot like unity to me, don't you think? Paul says they should complete his joy by being of the same mind, full accord, of one mind. Unity is obviously pretty important. I mean, clearly it was important to Jesus. He prayed for it. It's very important to the Apostle Paul. He's talking about it pretty deeply here. Um, And so, so, so some people would wonder, well, what does that mean? One mind, all of that. Does that mean we have to absolutely agree on everything? No, I mean, clearly, if you, you know, go through all of the scriptures, that's not going to happen. One of, the, one of the privileges that I have in putting together this uh, preaching initiative is that I got to see some of the notes that some of the other um, 
preachers were doing today. And um, one of them said that, that he was going to emphasize that unity is not uniformity. He said it like this, different is not wrong unless the different sets you at odds with God. And I like that. See, there's a lot of leeway in that statement because as long as we're not bucking against God, you know, we can have disagreements. We can, we can not see eye to eye on every issue and still be one. So all that to say that we, we unify, let me get practical here, we unify around the words of Christ. We unify around uh, his, his gospel, his death and resurrection, the finished work of Christ. We, we unify around Jesus. He is our unity building uh, aspect, if you will. So the essentials of the faith are called that for a reason, the essentials. And I would often uh, refer to those as things that are eternally significant, the things that, that are going to make a difference for us eternally. But honestly, if you think about it, that's a really short list, the essentials of the faith. And the, 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 the truth is that there are so many things that we have a tendency to argue about that have divided congregations over the years that are not on that essentials list? You know, if we agree that God Almighty sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, to substitutionarily pay for the sins of mankind so that we could be reconciled again to God and to one another, you know, I think that pretty well covered most. All right, there's a couple of other things that we would throw in there, but, but not this huge amount of things that we argue over uh, so often. So perhaps rather than look at what we should agree on, maybe we should look at our attitude in how we go about it. Next couple of verses in, verse, in uh, Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, so can you see, before I even comment on those verses, how living like that, having that kind of an attitude, would, would radically change how we walk together in unity? I mean, clearly. And if you think about it, this is really all about Jesus. We will never do this. We'll never walk in that kind of unity. We'll never um, uh, walk in that kind of humility with, with the Lord if we're pushing against what he wants in our lives. If, if, if we're wanting to, to hang on to our own personal preferences, if we want to do things our way, if we're unwilling to yield to him, and what he wants in our lives, then at best, unity is going to be a fleeting thing. It's going to be this like mirage that we can never quite attain because we can't. See, this attitude in, in seeing others as more significant than ourselves, it's, it's essential every place, but it's especially essential if we're talking about building Christian community because we have to, to see like that. We have to think like that. How, think, think about it. How would the world look at a group of people who honestly and regularly see one another as more significant than themselves. 
See, that, I mean, that would, that would radically change how they think. You know, the, 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 the phrasing that's been used through the, the years is, look how they love one another. And that's what Jesus said. John 13, 35, by this all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How are they going to know? We have love for one another. Let me tell you a quick story. In the, uh, at the, the turn of the second century, the, the gospel had already been uh, spread throughout the Roman Empire. But Christians back then were often looked upon with suspicion by their neighbors, by the government, because they had given up many of those behaviors that they previously practiced, part of their pagan culture, if you will. And so, so people thought they were just, you know, there's something, something not right there. And so there was an early church leader named Tertullian, um, and he wrote something. It was both a, an explanation of Christian practice, but it was also a, a critique of the, 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 the accusations that had been made against the Christians. And Tertullian said that the, those accusations were really made out of jealousy because the Christians were acting in a way that the rest of, the, of society didn't and couldn't, really. Here's what he said. It's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready to die even for one another, they say, for they themselves will sooner put to death. You know, I, I can't help but wonder, would that kind of sa th same thing, that how they love one another, would that be said about the church today? Would it be said about our congregation? And if not, why not? That people would know we were just his disciples because we love one another. Verses 5, 6, and 7 in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That goal of becoming Christ-like will, I think, automatically bring about a dimension of unity. But, but the goal isn't just to be a good person. Honestly, you and I can fake that. Even for our own glory, we can fake that. But to truly become Christ-like means that we, we renounce being the ruler of our lives and ask Him to rule and reign. To become Christ-like means that we give up our personal preferences and take upon the things that He wants for us. To be Christ-like means to become servants. Those type of things, those types of attitudes will automatically cause us to be more united, if you will. So in that sense, we could say that, that unity comes about, at least in part, uh, as a result of humility. One pastor said it like this, often we are not unified because we want to set the rules of engagement about life according to the kingdom of me. Is, is that just me that has that problem or are there others here that, yeah, okay. Let, let me make this practical for you. If I encounter a brother or sister in Christ who believes somewhat differently than I do about certain political issues, we can still be united if what we're doing is we're making much of the kingdom of God, of Jesus, his death and resurrection if we're making him the centerpiece of our lives, the focus, if you will, then those political things are not that big of a deal. 
And don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't talk about politics. Matter of fact, I think Christians should be involved in politics. But in the proper perspective, the kingdom of God is way more important than any of our political ideas. It just is. Sorry. One more verse in Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So practically in the context that we're talking about here, I think we should, and I mentioned this last week, take up our cross. Daily, dying to self, submit to the Lord, his lordship in every area. See, if we really want to talk about unity, then if we're honest, obedience matters. People who are disobedient to Jesus' command to come and follow him into death by submitting our lives, our agendas, our finances, our families, everything, will never be fully unified. We just can't. And that might sound odd. I mean, well, Tom, why not? Because as human beings, we tend to fight against anyone who dares to challenge our self-made kingdoms. Is it getting quiet in here intentionally, guys? See, I think instead of that, we ought to be dying to self. I recently heard someone say that the, one of the biggest obstacles to Christians living today in our culture is that we have the opportunity to choose what congregation we're a part of. See, today in our culture, options are like the main thing. We want choices about everything. I could spend a really long time on this. Let me just say this. Anybody here ever watched the uh, old television show, Little House on the Prairie? I love the fact that there is only one Christian church. They don't have the option of going to that one over there when they get their feathers ruffled, which means, practically means, that if there is a disagreement, if there is a problem, they have to work it out because they're all going to be in that same building next Sunday. And let's be really candid. If we're dying to self, if we're walking in humility, that shouldn't be that big of a deal. Okay, good. It's really quiet in here this morning. See, in all of these things, the, the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, needs to be preeminent. If you remember what I said, that the, that the gospel, that his death and resurrection, um, not only reconciles us to the Father, but it also reconciles us to one another. Um, that, and it was because of that, that that we have been made one. So if we talk about how we've been reconciled to the Father, but we miss that part, the horizontal part, we're missing part of the gospel message, Right? So think about this. Positionally, we are already made one because of what Jesus did. Positionally. From God's perspective, it's a done deal. Okay? Now, I want to go a little deeper with this, but I'm going to kind of come at it from a, a, a roundabout way. Most of us understand intellectually that we have been reconciled to the Father. We get that. But why? Why is it even possible for you to be reconciled to a holy God. Why is, why is your sin not still a chasm between you and God? It's because of what Jesus did, right? He, he died. He took your sins. He gave you forgiveness. 
and now you are holy and righteous before God. Everybody with me? Okay. So we understand that on an intellectual level. And I phrased it like that on purpose because it's a lot more difficult to take that understanding of that and get it deep down inside of us because you and I know the quirks and foibles that we still struggle with. We know the areas of sin that are still in our lives. And so for us, there are still times, and I'm sure this is not just me that does this, that still wonders, am I really acceptable to God? You understand what I'm saying? Because of that whole idea. But from God's perspective, it's done, it's over. We are his children. He has redeemed us. We are holy and righteous, pure in his sight. And I'm telling you this because we need to understand that not only is it true about you, but it's true about all these other people that are here. And it's true about all those other people in all of those other Christian congregations. They, and we don't always see it in one another. We don't see that perfection that God sees. We don't see that holiness, that righteousness. Sometimes we see other parts. Hello? Yeah. But from God's perspective, it's a done deal. See, I'm convinced that a major cause of our divisions in the church is because we see one another wrongly. What if we really saw each other the way that God sees us? You know, I have long been fascinated by the writings of C.S. Lewis. He's one of my writing heroes. And his book, Screwtape Letters, um, if you're not familiar with it, it's a classic. It's, it's written uh, as a series of letters um, from Screwtape, who is a, uh, a demon, but he's the undersecretary of the Department of Temptation, and he is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a junior tempter, all right? And at one point, Screwtape tells Wormwood, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So he describes this amazing, this is the church, this is what it looks like. And then he goes on to contrast that with what we often think, what humans often think of as the church. He says the church building. And when we go, because that's what we often think of when we say church, we go into the building and we see these people, our neighbors, other people that we, that we know, maybe people we don't know. And they're not that glorious thing because all we see is with our natural eyes. We're just seeing them kind of like, you know, the, the physical, if you will, and none of them look that glorious. But the question in the midst of this whole thing is, what if we saw ourselves and one another the way that God sees us? What if we didn't just see that frumpy neighbor who sits next to us? Or what if we didn't just see that elderly, frail woman in the seat down the way there a little ways, or that 
kid with the unkempt hair, or whatever it might be. What if we saw the glorious church of Christ in one another? What if we really saw each other as holy and righteous? People that have been made perfect because of what Jesus did. And what if we saw those people in our, our small groups? What if we saw them here on Sunday morning as we gather together? What if we, what if we saw them in our, our pot-blessed meals together? What if we saw those kind of people? Wouldn't it make a difference in how we interact with one another? You know, when, when people meet royalty from other nations, they don't treat those people like they do the guy next door. You know, there's lots of stories recently about folks who had, had met Queen Elizabeth during her lifetime. And, and even though she was, a, in many ways, a very unassuming kind of person, you know, people talked about how they were, were startled. Some even talked about being scared when they met her because there's something about that position, about having that office, that automatically brings a dimension of reverence, if you will. You know, if, if you were to meet an archbishop, you know, the, the fact that you're not Roman Catholic doesn't make any difference. There's going to be, you're not going to interact with that person the same way that you are with your, your best bud. You're just not. Because there is something about royalty and rank that, that we all understand, we all, we all get, and it causes us to think differently. And yet the reality is that you and I probably every single day of our lives interact with kings and queens, princes and princesses, prophets and priests, and we don't even recognize it. But what if we did? What if we saw those people the way that God does as the redeemed, holy people of God. Isn't that going to change how we interact with them? It's got to. It's an article I came across a while back by a guy named Jared Wilson. It's how to disciple your kids into church dropout status. He said this, if church is a regular Sunday for you, but not a gospel-driven priority of your daily life in prayer and fellowship and service, you show your kids that church is simply a place to go, not a people with whom you belong. Wow. I wish somebody had shown me that when our kids were little. What a statement. Most of you would know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a, a pastor, a theologian, an author who stood against the Nazis during World War II. His book, Life Together, he talks about how, how Christian community has to be built on the foundation of God's grace. You know, if we just see one another with our, our physical eyes, there are going to be points where people don't measure up. It's just the way it is. We don't like it when people let us down. We're, we're frustrated when we see shortcomings in the people that, that we hold in high esteem. And when someone fails, from our perspective at least, um, we, we, our, our natural inclination is to pull away from them, right? Bonhoeffer suggests that that kind of mindset really has to be broken, and the sooner the better. In other words, if, if you understand that you only stand by grace, then you need to recognize that that is true for everybody else also. 
and willingly extend that grace to them. Bonhoeffer said this, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. Unfortunately, that happens all too often. And I came across this quote from a pastor in Houston, Texas on Facebook a while back. He said this, breaking fellowship and leaving your church over secondary debatable or political issues is a testament to your view of the church, not the significance of the issue. If the saving work, uh, that right there is enough of a, a quote, right? If the saving work of Jesus isn't enough to bind you to your church, nothing will. And when your new leader, or your, excuse me, your new church, your new leaders, or your new community disagree with you on whatever issue you've deemed more essential than the gospel, you'll leave again. At some point, you need to stop and ask, do I believe what Christ has accomplished is enough to make us one? Am I willing to fight for the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace? Or do I just want an affinity group of people who think like me, look like me, vote like me, and dislike the same people I dislike. Whew. Wow. I love his question. Am I willing to fight for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? You know, he's really, he's really quoting there, um, ad-lib quoting, out of Ephesians 4, where, where Paul says that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But, but you, have to, you have to get the whole context because right before that, right before he says maintain, he says be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Like, do it! Is it worth fighting for? I think it is. Let's try this from a different angle. How, how many times throughout the New Testament are we referred to as the body of Christ? I mean, over and over we see that term. We, you and I, have been, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, made part of him. Somehow, I am part of him and you are part of him. And that's why, that's why our relationships with one another are so important. If I'm part of Christ and you are part of Christ, then we can't be at odds with one another. Oh, we can, but it's like, it's like this. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? No, of course not. It's certainly not God's best. I think that the, at least a part of the problem is that this whole, this whole thing is outside of our Western mindset. You, you've heard me quote before from um, the, the book Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. I really recommend the book. It's tremendous. Um, let me read you another quote from that book. In Peter's image of, the, of one temple in which we are each stones, we in the West may assume that the emphasis is on the parts. We think, look, I'm this unique stone right there. It's a little like buying a commemorative brick for a building project, one with your name on it. We're happy to be part of the collective as long as we, still we are still individually recognizable. But what went without being said for Peter and his audience and much of the rest of the world today is that the emphasis is on the whole. They would have thought, I'm an indistinguishable part of this whole, but a part nonetheless. Paul was reflecting this thought in his letter to the Ephesians. In him, talking about Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you, that plural you there, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In some way, 
we may not, in some way, we may not fully understand the Spirit indwells the group in a way the Spirit does not indwell the individual. We are built together to become one whole building, a single dwelling for His Spirit. Like it or not, we need each other. We sure do. Let's, let's approach this from a, a little different perspective, a little different angle. You've heard me talk about this before. Um, John 13 through 17, longest red letter section in the Bible, five chapters of almost nothing but the words of Jesus. In chapter 14, in response to Philip asking Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What a, what a statement. I'm in the Father. And the, they, they're so intertwined somehow that Jesus can honestly say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And I, I find that fascinating because it's just a, a couple chapters later that Jesus praying says, Father, make them one just as you and I are one. What? He's praying that we would be one like Jesus and the Father, I am in him and he is in me that we would have that same kind of oneness, that same kind of unity. So do you, just ask a hypothetical question, do you think the, the Father and Jesus ever make demeaning comments about one another? Do you think they ever belittle one another? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, I'm, all right, that's pretty obvious. But, but, suppose, but suppose they weren't together. What, all right, they're omnipresent. They're always together, right? But, but suppose they could somehow not be together. Suppose they could actually be separate. They would, couldn't hear one another, didn't know what one another was talking about or thinking. Do you suppose at that point they might say something disparaging about the other? No! I mean, what, a, what an absurd question, Tom. Of course they wouldn't. And yet, Jesus prayed that we would have the same kind of unity that they have. I don't think we've quite gotten there. All right, let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture just to close this out. We're almost done. Don't panic. You should know that from your notes, right? Yeah. Okay, good. John 13, 35. We, we kind of glimpsed at this earlier. I want to spend a little bit more time. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's just, let's just take Jesus' words at face value here. He, he says that people, and he says all people, so we could say the world. He says that the, the world, that all people will know that we're followers of Jesus because we're tolerating each other, right? Or because we're, we're constantly bickering with one another or gossiping about one another. No, he doesn't say that. He says, says that they're going to know that we're his disciples because we love one another. All right, so, so what should that look like? I mean, I'm trying to be practical here. What should that look like? Well, if we're going to talk about love, what, what if we were to suggest that perhaps we should take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter. So in that context, if I want to love the way that the Bible says, maybe the questions I should ask are things like, am I being patient and kind with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I ever envious or boastful toward them? Am I arrogant or rude at times? Do I insist on my own way? Am I irritable or resentful toward them? And, I, and I'm just getting started. I'm, I'm going to challenge you 
to sometime this week read 1 Corinthians 13. And as you do it, pray through it. Say, Lord, am I being loving toward my brothers and sisters in Christ the way that you want me to? All right, one last scripture from John 17. John 17, 23, where Jesus asked that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. In the middle of that sentence, there is uh, what in grammar is referred to as a purpose clause. Purpose clauses are usually pretty easy to identify. They use words like in order that or so that or for the purpose of, you know, that kind of thing. If you remember your, your high school English class, what it means is um, there's this statement and then there's the, the purpose clause and an explanation given basically is the, the, the concept. So, so Jesus prays for us to be one so that the world may know that you sent me. So think about that. If we're not one, then the world doesn't know that Jesus was sent by the Father. When we're divided, when we're not united the way that he wants us to be, then what the world sees is a bunch of people who struggle with the same kind of divisions that they do. A man named John Armstrong said it like this, we act and treat one another how we act and treat one another really matters because our actions represent the nature and identity of God to those who do not know him. And that's the essence of what Jesus said. Love one another. Be unified. And then the world's going to stand up and take notice. You with me? Amen. Popular author uh, Francis Chan, he said it like this. Sometimes the dream of a united church feels unattainable, so we busy ourselves with goals that are within reach. While we may believe that our oneness would impact the world, we are nowhere close to that, so we find other methods of attracting the lost. God's method seems too hard, so we come up with better ideas. <sighs> I like Francis Chan, personally. You know, I think maybe we should try Jesus' idea, personally. I... And I've heard... I've heard people say that this side of eternity that will never reach the, the level of unity that the Bible describes. And, and in one sense, I, I, I totally get that. But let's be really honest. Do you think that you personally are ever going to reach the level of physical, in this temporal sanctification that the Bible describes before you go on to eternity. Anybody here think you're going to reach that level? Okay, good. I, I was hoping it wasn't just me. Yeah, it, but, but does that mean we just give up? No, we keep pressing forward. We keep going forward. And it's the same thing with unity. We are probably not this side of eternity going to master it, get it perfectly. But that doesn't mean we give up. We keep going. Keep moving forward. Here's the bottom line. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has already made us one. Unfortunately, just because that's a, a spiritual reality already, that doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be manifested into the physical realm. So we need to, as I said earlier, we need to live into it more and more. We have an obligation, I think, to walk out the, the one another's of the Bible, build one another up, honor one another, accept one another, care for one another, encourage one another, love one another. That's, that's just the short list. There's lots more. You get the idea. We, we treat each other with kindness and compassion and forgiveness. 
We encourage each other. We care for each other. We love each other because the Lord has made us one body. Great 20th century thinker Francis Schaeffer said it like this. It is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well and we're all standing around in a nice little circle, there's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to a place, to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something that they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. And that's what Jesus prayed for. Father, today, we have heard your truth. Lord, I know that numerous times as I have written and shared these words that I have felt convicted. Lord, I, I have fallen in so many ways and so many times so far short of what I just spoke. But I'm guessing I'm probably not the only one here that's like that. Lord, forgive us. God, we are wanting to do the things that you want us to do. We are wanting to live in the ways that you want us to live. And so we ask that you would, by your Spirit and your Word, working in us, cause these things to become more and more of a reality. May we, may we take the truth of your Word, and not just be hearers, but to be doers, by the power of your Spirit at work within us. Lord, we thank you that you will do that. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>